Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast that we started when we had no airshows to review. My name's Sam Wise. On the UCAR forums, you'll know me as Wissam24. And with me today are... Tom Jones, Tommy on the forum. I'm Dominic Vickery, Dom Vickery on the forum. And also joining us tonight is a uh, a man who has done quite a lot in his, in his career so far. Um, people listening to the podcast might know him best as the lead display pilot at the Yeovilton 2017 air show where he flew French Navy Rafale M display. Uh, in the French Navy, he also flew the Super Retondade Modernise, uh, flew combat missions over the Middle East. Um, since leaving the Navy, he has gone to become an airline pilot, uh, an author, uh, an entrepreneur, a speaker around the globe, uh, doing business and corporate training. And lately, he's also now a YouTuber and an a eSports streamer. Have I, have I missed anything out there? <laughs> a father of three as well. <laughs> and a father of three, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so join, joining us tonight is um, uh, Pierre-Henri Chouet, uh, call sign Ate. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, how, how's everything been with, uh, with everything going on this year? Oh, it's been pretty calm, actually. Uh, not much flying, so so it's been a weird year, I guess, just like for anyone else. And uh, and I was lucky enough to to be on lockdown in the south of France, so you can't complain when you <laughs> when you're locked down in Provence. So. Um, very nice. Um, so we'll we'll talk about your career in the navy first. But actually, you started flying from quite a young age, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I started at 14. I did my first solo the day of my 15th birthday. And I did uh, three hours of solo time the same day to be able to take the what we call the brevet de base, so basic license, if you want, um, exam the same day. And I got my brevet de base um, the day of my 15th birthday. So I started at a young age indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what, what made you decide to go into the French Navy? Um, my dad was a former uh, French Air Force fighter pilot, so um, I don't know if you know the, the comics uh, Bug Danny, it's a, it's a French-Belgium um, comic and, and it's about a guy from the US Air Force doing like a 50-year change with the US Navy. So he starts during World War II and then now he flies F-22 and sometimes F-18s. <laughs> but um, long story short, um, he, most of those comics are based on aircraft carrier. And I always ask myself, it looks like it's something extremely difficult to, to work from a carrier. Um, if I join the Air Force, I'm always going to ask myself the question, would I have been able to, to do a carrier landing? So, so I decided to, to try the Navy first and aim for the toughest, I guess. And, uh, and I got lucky. So I, I managed to pass the exams and all that stuff. And I was able to fly from a boat. But uh, it's really... A, initially out of challenge and also because you get the training in the US and the flying is much more diverse than what you can find in the French Air Force. So what were you training on in the US? The Goshawk? Yes, um, I initially started flying the mighty T-34 Charlie Turbomotor, so it's <laughs> pretty old school. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, most of the aircraft... I, I, I'm about to turn 34, but most of the aircraft I flew are now in museums. So, <laughs> you, you can know. If, uh, I, I was 26, the Super I flew was already at the museum in, in Paris. But uh, <laughs> I flew the Turbo Motor, and after that, the T45C um, before coming back to France to fly a little bit of Falcon 10 to do my IFR ratings. And after that, Super Etendard and Rafale. Yes. So, how many types have you flown overall in your career? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Military-wise, I flew Captain, which is a small selection aircraft. So you can actually fly it in the new flight simulator, <laughs> the, the Captain. Yes. Uh, I, f I flew Rally, which is like a, an old trainer, uh, same single engine. Uh, with that aircraft, you can fly so slow when there is some strong winds in Brittany, you actually can fly reverse <laughs> in terms of ground speed. <laughs> which is pretty cool. Uh, so I flew reverse with the rally initially, and then I flew Tucano, uh, Turbomotor, T-45, Super E, Falcon 10, and Rafale. 
And I think that's it. But then in the civilian general aviation, um, I flew quite a lot of diverse types from Cessna 150 in Precision Flying World Championship to Deer 400, Extra 200 in contests, uh, Captain, Sear 100, um, and all, most of modern uh, general aviation aircraft. And of course, you're type rated on the, uh, the 737 MAX as well. Indeed, the infamous 737 <laughs> Max. So not doing much flying lately. <laughs> Do you have a favorite type, a type that you always look back to and think, I really love flying that machine? Honestly, it's, it's very tough to say. Uh, extra 200, uh, all the extra aircraft, if you want to keep it simple, take an aircraft and fly the aircraft, you, you need that type of aerobatic aircraft. It's insane. Um, if it's more on a military point of view, the super étendard is what you want to fly basically to do a fun flight with your buddies like the four of us doing a formation flight we we have to do super étendard uh, you have the trim it's it's a big stick and it's direct input on the controls so it's old school and you really get to fly the aircraft if you if you go full left rudder and full left aileron at 120 knots it's not going to work out very well for you. So, so it's really <laughs> the basics of aviation. Um, but then if you tell me, hey, we have to go kick some ass, and I'll, I'll, I'll take the Rafale because it's extremely powerful. But yet in terms of flying, at 100 knots, you can go full left rudder, full left stick. The computer is going to take care of it for you. So it's not, it's not the same pleasure. It's like comparing a, maybe a Tesla. <laughs> I don't know. I've never, never driven a Tesla. But, but something very modern with a lot of, systems that are going to recover if you do something wrong to an old Porsche 911 uh, that is going to for sure put you out of the, of the street if you, if you are too aggressive on, on the controls. How much of a step up was it between the, um, the uh, Super Etendard and the Rafale? <laughs> it was a huge step. Um, uh, at that time, I already had about 800 hours on the Super E. Uh, was night qualified for carrier landing. I was instructor, so um, I had four and a half years of experience flying fast jets. I mean, flying super e, and and the transition was wasn't difficult. Really, I mean, difficult, but it was shocking in terms of power. Uh, the super étendard does not have afterburner, so the big difference between the T forty five and the super étendard is that the T forty five or Hawk it, it's going to accelerate up to 350, 400 knots-ish. And then it's not gonna really accelerate anymore. When you switch to a super étendard, you discover that there is a life beyond 350 knots or 450 knots, as the aircraft keeps accelerating at low level. And then when you transition to the Rafale and you discover the afterburner, you realize that at low altitude, high speed, you are really the limit. And in air mm. shows, you, like in Yovelton, you Honestly, when you come back to do the officially max zero, I think in the UK it's max 0.9, correct? Uh, the maximum speed, but as French, you know, we, we're French. But uh, <laughs> in French, it's max, in France, it's 0.95, and we would usually do 0.98. But it, it just accelerates so fast, you hold on to the stick. And you're really just like hanging, uh, hanging out on the stick and, and you feel the pressure pushing you, the G-force pushing you away from the stick and you're like just holding on to the stick. And it's, it's a feeling you don't have on the Super E. So it's really like this feeling of a, a Rafale that is, that is in air-to-air -air configuration. It's, it's, I used to call it the space shuttle. It's pretty insane. So, mm -hmm. so in terms of power, it's really a different level. Um, you mentioned the Ovalton 2017 display. Now that was unbelievably well received on our end i know tom and i were both there and saw it and i think we were i mean we were blown away by it when we on the day and actually i think it took the number two slot in our top 10 of that year um could you i mean talk us through yeah uh, by the way I, I i'll never forgive you guys for not giving me <laughs> <that> one <laughs> we fought for it don't worry um, you, you know we have uh, we have armed UAVs now in France. One is coming toward your way. So be careful. <laughs> would it would it make you feel any better if you know that the number one was taken by a Su twenty seven? Yeah, yeah. I actually I actually really enjoyed those those, those displays. I, I saw one in I think it was Riot. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. I mean those, those displays. I mean you can compete. Just so I'm okay with it. <laughs> good. Good. 
um i mean yeah could you like talk us through the the build up to it how you were selected to become the, the lead pilot for it what your air show experience was and then obviously what it was like displaying at yeovilton on the day Sure. Um, so what you have to understand about the French Navy is that we're not professional display pilots. Um, we don't have budget really for display teams and stuff like that. So if you look at the Air Force display team, it's an instructor whose full-time job is to instruct. So he's not an operational pilot anymore. But during weekends, he so he has a he has a dozens of flight of training of rehearsal before. He has a coach. I mean, everything is is well constructed for performance. In the French Navy, it's what we call a tactical display. And to keep it short, before Yeovilton, I was given one training mission. That's it. Just one. Wow. So you really have, <laughs> just one, yeah. So you you really have to keep it simple. Um, so we have the sim. So we did a one simulator and and actually the sim was closed in Landivisio. So we had to go to the Air Force to do the sim. But the big difference is we <laughs> don't get as much training. And when you fly air shows as part of the tactical display during the weekend, you don't get any day off during the week. Uh, so you can do like sometimes 30, 40, 50 days without day off. Uh, so it's really different. So you can push yourself to the limit like you would as a it's an official display palette. So, so it's something to take in, into account. I think now in, in the French Air Force, they started a, a tactical display as well. Every time you have a tactical unit with tactical pilots doing it, yeah, you, you have to keep that in mind. They don't get the same training. So because we don't get the same training, we have to keep stuff as easy as possible. And we have to dig into stuff we are proficient in and do those things. That's why we don't do as much vertical zooms or stuff like that as we could. It's because doing low level vertical aerobatics is not something we're trained for because when we train for aerobatics, it's not below 5,000 feet. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, before taking the lead in 2017, I started as a, as a wingman in 2015. I was young on a Rafale at the stage and they were looking for a wingman to, for, for a couple of weekends. And I had a good relationship with the uh, lead pilot. So he, we dis uh, he, ex he accepted um, for me to join the display. And I started initially doing a couple flights as wingman. And in 2017, they wanted to change the lead pilot. So they asked me to if I was interested in taking the lead. I said yes. And then they asked me, what wingman do you want? And I said, the former lead pilot. Because <laughs> 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 we knew each other extremely well. I had a lot of respect for him. He was one of the most proficient guy on the Rafale. And we don't get much training. So all the work we all the experience we gained together, it was sad basically to, to, to remove it. And they told me, no, not gonna happen. So you're gonna fly with that guy. And I said, no, there is no way I'm flying with that guy because I don't have enough flight to train him and I don't trust him for, for that specific stuff. So I picked another wingman and he did a very good job. Um, but it was kind of sad. I actually talk about it in my book because everybody can be trained to do display. It's just like anybody could be trained to be a fire pilot. It's, how much training you're gonna need to be up to speed. And what we're looking for during military flight training is we want you to be up to speed extremely fast because the flight hours are extremely expensive and we need you to be operational very fast. So um, the big issue with those tactical displays is putting your team up to speed in um, <laughs> in a couple of flights only. So so that was really the challenge. Now, as far as Geovilton goes, uh, we did one training flight in Landivisio where we do two training uh, two training display. And then um, we were able to do a rehearsal flight in Geovilton the day before. And all the spotters that were there, um, they, some of them posted uh, footage online on YouTube. So um, before the D-Day, uh, I went online and I looked to all the forums, <laughs> all the YouTube channels, everything and actually use all the footage that people posted to debrief my wingman and to change the display a little bit. So a big shout out to all the guys that posted the same day. Uh, Fantastic. Your work and effort didn't go unnoticed. So if the display looks the way it did, it's thanks to you guys. Because I was able to see, because I don't have a team on the ground to film. So I was able to see exactly what how, how good or bad it, it looked from the ground. And uh, um, that's why I decided to go a bit more vertical than what we usually do uh, to show the tiger a bit more. But uh, 
Yeah, so the British undergrounds really helped me <laughs> display the way I did. So. I had no idea. That's quite interesting. That is that is actually it's it's that's something you don't hear very often. <laughs> no, no. Well, to change it the same day is is pretty mind blowing. Oh, that's crazy. Do you think other um, display pilots uh, also sort of look at footage posted that day or or the you know days after the show for the next one to debrief themselves and? Uh... Sure. Um... I think it depends on the display palettes. There are several types of display palettes. If you look at the Red Arrows or the Patrouille de France, they have their own team and it's going to be recorded and they're going to be able to debrief using a, a very well um, proceed. I mean, w- 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 with a routine, they have their footage, they know exactly what to do and, and I'm really not concerned. I'm sure they, they really know what they're doing and, and they're doing a terrific job. But when you take display pilots like me that display just a couple times in the year so I don't have all those background on the ground all those guys on the ground uh, then you have two types of guys usually you have the guys that are really interested in making it as good as possible um, you, I, I, I'm, I come from a, a aerobatic contest background uh, so I really from an early age I started doing aerobatics competition at 16 so I really have the feel for um, having to stay in front of the crowd, all that stuff. And, and you really try to to enhance the experience. So so you're going to have the guys that are really going to put in the work because they know precisely what they want it to look like. And you're going to have the guys that they know for a fact and they're right, that as long as they show up and they take off and they do the noise and their routines, that 99.5% of the crowd is going to be satisfied. So it's all to, are you willing to really put like 90% more effort into preparing your routine for not much? It depends on the guys and honestly, it's down to their fatigue level because as I said earlier, you don't have that much days off mm. and it takes, it takes some energy to, to go the extra mile. So, so I, I can't answer for the other guys but uh, everybody's different and that's what's so cool about the military is when you're in charge of a team like that you can really give it the momentum you want depending on the objectives you are but you have to keep in mind that your primary objective is safety so you don't want to be pushing too hard on the it has to look good because it's nobody really cares um, I mean, you, you know what I get, but uh, you, you know what I mean. As long as you take off and and the aircraft fly, most of the people are happy, and that's what your real objective should be. Trying to make it look fancy to win a contest or stuff like that shouldn't be in your top three priorities. Should be safety, 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 and after that, okay, let's start to build some stuff. Especially with a team that doesn't have a lot of experience. On a sort of that similar theme, you've you've spoken about when you were you were flying in combat and then obviously you were on the Charles de Gaulle and in the in the Mediterranean. Could you maybe tell us about that period and what that was like and, and that sort of tempo of life and operations? Sure. Um so life on a boat is is very special. Um, so what peop most people usually don't understand and I didn't <laughs> I didn't knew that before starting in the Navy and, and deploying is uh, before deployment, you have to do all what 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 in the, what they call in the U.S. the workups. So you have to be prepared to be able to deploy. So it's um, training to land, tactical training, a lot of stuff. So you have to be up to speed. It takes a lot of training, and when you show up on the boat on day one for a four to five months cruise, you're already exhausted uh-huh. because you you just went through all those workups. And just to give you an idea, usually with the French Navy, due to the noise in Nandivisio or Naval Station Base in Brittany, um, before before deploying for four months, we would leave our base and our families to live two weeks or three weeks in the south of France on Istres Air Force Base because the base is bigger so we can do our FCLPs uh, without being harassed by, <laughs> by the neighbors. So just... Add something to keep in mind, even when you look at books or stuff like that, people describing how their tour was. Usually you you start your tour, you're already fatigued. Add something to add something that's gonna affect your flying, it's gonna affect your spirit. Add something to keep in mind. Um, so what you have to understand afterwards is flying a jet could be seen as a sprint, yet a combat mission in Iraq is a marathon. It's gonna—it's actually an Ironman. It's gonna last like six to eight hours, and you're basically doing every three days an eight-hour effort, part of a five-month cruise that you started initially fatigued. 
So what you really want to be careful is managing your energy during the entire um, during the entire um, period um, at sea, because in the end there is no automatic landing systems, there is no G pass like in the F thirty five or stuff like that. When you show up behind the boat at night. Uh, which is nowadays one of the most dangerous moments um, of, of your mission. Uh, the only guy that's going to fail, I mean, the only system that's going to fail is, is you. <laughs> so you want to make sure you, you're, you're, um, you're ready for that night landing after six hours of difficulties of our Iraq, stuff like that. So, so it's really all about managing your, your energy level during those world conditions, because sometimes you have to sprint, sometimes you have to... It's a weird effort, uh, and what I recall from all that period is this dichotomy of I have to be all in because it's combat, yet I have to keep it a little bit, I have to, to save some fuel, some physical fuel um, for safety. So, so there's a real dichotomy, and you're not really prepared for it because during training you can do six or seven hours missions uh, every other day. Um, it would be too expensive and it wouldn't make much much sense in training. So so it's 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 a new challenge you have to face. How difficult was it to learn to actually land on the carriers? I think I've seen one of your videos where I think it was your first carrier landing where your instructor was was having a bit of a go because you didn't land with full throttle. <laughs> um, how difficult was it to actually learn? How long did it take you to to become proficient in carrier landings? Yeah, Dominic, so you can say I got yelled at by the landing single officers, yes. <laughs> um, um, learning wasn't, I mean, it, it, it's US Navy. Um, no offense taking for the US Navy, uh, I owe them a lot, I'm a designated US Naval Aviator, but you have to look at the US Navy curriculum a little bit like, you know, the Empire in Star Wars. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's a huge military, it is huge, and they have to train hundreds of personnel, thousands of personnel every year. So they know exactly how to take a 20-year-old pilot and bring him up to speed and land a boat. They know how to do it. They're, they're absolutely the best in the world to do that. And just look at the numbers they're, they're training, it's insane. So if you're in the momentum, Everything is so well explained. Every, as the procedures, the instructors are so professional. Uh, and then, I mean, it's so rehearsed. Everybody is doing it for years and years, and they're extremely good at what they do. So they make it look easy, yet dangerous, uh, but doesn't feel out of the world because they bring you up to speed. It takes time. It takes time to, to, to train you, but, but the day you go, you don't feel like it's out of your league. You're going to be stressed. But it's a gradual onset. Uh, transitioning to the Super E was a bit more difficult because the aircraft is much more challenging. And the boat being smaller, the windows, as we call them, are much tougher. So you can do a big overshoot trying to land on a Truman. They're, the French LSOs are never going to let you do an undershoot or an overshoot. It's just there's no way because the safety margins are much smaller because the boat is smaller and the arresting cables are closer to the back. Um, so, so I think the biggest challenge was actually doing the FCLP training on the Super Etendard. And some guys never passed that phase, even though they were naval qual carrier qualified in the US. Um, now that we have only Rafale, life is easier because the auto throttle is extremely efficient and something less you have to do. If you look at the, uh, I got a video on how to land a Super Etendard, look at the throttle, it's just insane. And you remove that from the equation on Rafale when the auto throttle works, but it works extremely well. So, so the, to sum up my answer, in the US, very good curriculum, very very standardized. You don't feel the pain. Uh, it's a gradual onset. When you come back to France, uh, when back in the days on the Super E, it's you, you feel the pain a little bit. <laughs> and then fast forward to. Um when you're in combat and you're coming back to the boat and you're landing landing at night, what's going through your head as you're coming into land and it's pitch black and you know it's a choppy sea and you've just been on a eight hour mission? <laughs> what's what, what are you thinking as you're doing it? <laughs> I'm gonna quote um, I'm gonna quote the commanding officer of the USS Alabama in a <laughs> in a very famous movie um, you should have joined the air force that's what you're thinking <laughs> like damn it damn my ego i should have joined the air force 
<laughs> I, I would be doing an automatic ILS landing and then heading toward the, the hotel, four-star hotel, and, <laughs> and ending my evening in a strip club. <laughs> and now, I'm landing on a boat, and, 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 and with the time and landing, I'm, I'm missing dinner as well. So I'm going to have to eat a sandwich in my room watching... And I don't even have Netflix. There is no Wi-Fi. So I have to watch the same video over and over, over again. So <laughs> that's what you're thinking. But, uh, but you know, uh, joke aside, yeah, it depends on the date. But sometimes you honestly think that. Uh, but uh, it's, it's all about being in the moment and um, being 100% focused. So b before you start your descent, you like brief yourself like, hey, out of the equation, the boat, uh, the racing cable, um, the LSOs, the aircraft, uh, the nuclear engines on the boats, the uh, Iranian of the coast, all that stuff. I'm the weak one. If there is an accident, 99% chances it's going to come from me. So I have to evaluate myself and make sure I adapt my safety margins to the level of proficiency I feel myself being at at that moment. So it's all about being able to analyze yourself to not take too much risk and if you have to do a bolter so if you have to miss the cable because you went on the good side of safety and just do it even if it's an extra 10 minutes of flight uh, so it's all about understanding that you're a human and that uh, and that i mean maverick is awesome but you're not maverick <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's really what goes through your mind is reminding yourself you're uh, you're just a human being and you you'd better be basically watch yourself how do you um, keep yourself uh, motivated? Is the wrong word, but sort of keep yourself going over the the entire tour. You know, I, I imagine that everyone is exhausted by the end of it. How do you find those reserves to keep going and keep doing those uh, those landings or those combat missions? Um, I'm sure you've heard that from other military personnel, but in the military you really learn how to sleep anywhere anytime so it's all, so you so I, I could have a phd in napping so just put me anywhere i, I can nap so, so it's understanding the importance of naps um, and then it's understanding the the importance of the right mindset so it's all about the mindset um, i didn't go through college initially i joined i went through college afterwards actually i, I was doing my college degree during my combat missions i mean after in the evening philosophy but um <laughs> which might sound weird i'm <laughs> dropping bombs and in the evening doing exams <laughs> on philosophy but, uh, i think that gives short, you some perspective giving you first-hand experience for your, for your degree. yes yes but actually my university was from one of the areas that was touched by the um, terrorist attacks Okay. Just that, that led toward deployment. So sometimes I would explain what I, what my current job was in my in my essay and stuff like that. And I'm sure that's why I passed that degree. They were just like, "Oh, poor guy, just giving me his exams." Have <laughs> 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 <of> empathy. Like, <laughs> but, uh, but but to answer your question, you understand that your mindset is is key. So it's all about breaking stuff down into small objectives. Um, the flight has to be break, broken down into small parts and you go from one part to the other. The cruise has to be broken down into half days, uh, all that stuff. And it's all about moving forward. It's just like when you're in pain, it's one step after the other. And what really works is breaking those objectives down to, to the bare minimum. Um, otherwise, if you, if you give yourself goals that are too far, I mean, there, there are exceptions. Some guys are immensely strong mentally but uh, I'm not one of them and I really have to to break stuff down and by breaking stuff down and just going from one small victory to the other it enables you to go through um, might not mean that you're enjoying every single day but you're at least you're, you're getting through and some days are tougher than others when you're doing like troops in contact and you really have an impact and you save guys then you're motivated for a couple of days but then you you have an issue or something at home happened or even you you wanted to help but then you weren't able to do the drop for rules of engagement stuff like that then it's uh, that might be tougher so so it's all about trying to mitigate those changes of mindset and understanding that you have to protect your mindset at every cost and as a leader as a flight leader you have to make sure your team is in the right mindset and your technicians i was in charge of 25 young technicians have the right mindset as well so you have to pay them a visit on a daily basis have some fun i mean it's um, 
it's all about being human it's just being human mm. i guess now a lot of a lot of the things you've been talking about here is is um you discuss in your book uh, uh debrief what what prompted you to 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 write a book uh i had time <laughs> Uh, with a 737 Max, I had some time. So, <laughs> uh, 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 honestly, um, so I got my training on the Max, and then um, I got a stroke. Uh, so I'm doing fine, but uh, I got a stroke, and the stroke prevented me from flying f for a year. I was forced out of the cockpit for a year, and during that year off, initially I went to to use it to 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 start a business in virtual reality using DCS flight simulation stuff like that and I realized that a lot of the challenges I faced uh, as a pilot are challenges of um, that, that managers um, face on a daily basis in the corporate world so I moved my shift a little bit toward a keynote and then from working on my key, on my keynote um, topics I realized I was able to 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 to, to do a book out of it so I. I decided to do a book that is available on Amazon. It's in English. I actually did a three months of best-selling author in leadership on Amazon France. Congratulations. Unexpected, <laughs> but, uh, but awesome. And um, I'm working on translating it in French, actually. But uh, um, I ended up just wanting to share my insights. And having that stroke, I realized that all the method we use in the jets our methods that apply beyond the cockpit. And that's that's basically the idea of the book is to give you an insight of methods that work, that are combat proven, that you could easily use on a daily basis because every morning when you wake up, uh, you're in charge of your own single single seat fast jet uh, yourself. And, uh, and it actually works. Um, um, a pilot in command is, is mostly a mindset and, uh, and that's something you could apply beyond the cockpit. So that's the idea of the book. And uh, it's been pretty well received so far, so uh, I can't complain. <laughs> so um, we we talked about your, uh, your your carrier tour. We talked about um, your exceptional display at Yeovilton, and I agree with Sam. I think everyone there, you know, it's, it's one of the things we absolutely remember. Um, how long was it after you performed that display, or how long was it after in, in 2017 um, after you left the uh, the French Navy, and and sort of. Did you decide to leave then, or was it just your time was up, or, or what sort of thought yeah. process was um, so, so The way it works in France, uh, we, you have two types of curriculum. One is you do two years after high school, and then you join the big um, college, a military college, and then you can make it to colonel or general or admiral and all that stuff. Or you join right after high school, and then you're going to be able to do 25 years in the service. You initially sign 13 years. At the end of those 13 years, 99% of the guys sign again because you get a pension after 17 to 25 years. And due to the conjecture um, in civil aviation, uh, I knew that there was going to be a lot of requests for uh, airline pilots in 2017, 18, 19. And I computed that if I was to join Air Canada in 2018, I could become captain before my basically before 35 year old. Uh, so it made sense from a lifestyle and for my kids and all that stuff. Um, and on the other hand, I had the chance to have combat experience, air show experience, and had I stayed another 10 years in the service, I would have been sort of trapped in Brittany and, and I wouldn't have done much more in terms of flying. Uh, so I decided to leave. Um, so initially the Navy said, no, you shouldn't leave, but they can't keep you in the service because you signed for 13 years. So they told me, we don't see from a good eyes that you leave, but there's nothing we can do. So, so, so I left and, um, and I really decided to leave, which means that I had my final flight and all that stuff. So it was great. Um, my mindset was it's better to leave when you're at the top than to I mean, you know mm. the Batman stuff, like you only live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think we all know of old instructors that are like, out of, I mean, sometimes you're just too old for the job. And it's a young man's sport, so I think it's important to, to, to keep it young and fresh in the, in the squadrons as well. You need some older guys, some like what, what you guys call in the world for squadron uncles. But... Um, 
I think it's better to to show up to do. I did nine years of operational squadrons almost nonstop, and you just give it all, and then I mean that's it. You you leave and you move on and you do something else of your life. And that was my mindset. So I really was at 120 percent during all those years. I don't regret it, and I think that maybe doing 20 years, but at 60 percent is not fun. And honestly, doing. 20 years at 120%, I would have died. <laughs> so mm. so I, 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 I knew I had to leave because I, I wasn't able to keep up with that crazy pace as well. And when I do something, uh, I can't pace myself unless I'm flying a commercial aircraft. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I do stuff on the side. Too. No bolts is in the max. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, the barrel roll with a max is not good for the passengers. So. <laughs> So, um, some... I mean, I think there's a lot we could say about the seven three seven max. So that so some people um, might have might have heard that obviously um, you're in the French Navy, you were locked down in the south of France, but you're a, a captain at uh, with Air Canada. So first officer, first officer, first officer. Uh, you are. You're uh, I, I would have been able to make it captain without the COVID at the seniority because it's seniority based in big companies. Um, so I would have been able to go to require request left seat on A two hundred twenty or three twenty or or max. Uh, but with the COVID, uh, all the See? upgrades are, are are delayed quite a lot. You would have been able to request captaincy without having flown for them yet. Yeah, but I wouldn't have been able to be captain. It's um, it's seniority base, which means the slot can be yours if you have the good seniority number. Then you have to go through the training, and the spot is yours. And as as soon as you got enough experience, up there you go. You take your spot. Fair and is, is, that's extremely important for all people willing to to join a major someday. Uh, you have to understand that the sooner you get in, the sooner you take a seniority number and your schedule and your left um, left seat upgrade are going to be dictated by this left seat um, by, by this seniority number. It's not the same in every company, but Air Canada, Delta, uh, all those big companies, it's all about seniority. So this this seniority number is really what dictates your life because when there is a schedule that comes out. Um, the most senior guys, they pick the flights. And then the guys below, they pick what's left. And at the end, you're on reserve. So you're you're like too junior to get a schedule and you're just sitting at your house or in a crash pad, uh, sitting reserves the entire day, uh, which is not the same lifestyle as having uh, being able to select your flights, of course. So why Air Canada, not uh, Air France or, or a European Mindset. Um, uh, two reasons, really. Uh, first one was mindset. I wanted to do something on the side, and Air Canada had uh, this very fast upgrade. Uh, I like the mindset in North America. I'm French-Canadian by my mom, and I really saw it as an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to get a bit more in the capitalist mindset and this extreme standard operating procedure world. Uh, in North America, its procedures are key, and I, I like that. Uh, I enjoyed it in the Navy, in the, in the US Navy. So that's a big issue, a big point. The other one is um, to be able to join Air France, being in the military wouldn't have helped me because they have some sort of a list, and the military head of HR, they basically tell the head of HR of Air France, hey, uh, do the selection process for that guy, that guy, that guy. So they sort of have a list and I would have been blacklisted because I decided to leave early. So I, I, I might have been able to get through, but it's it's more mindset stuff. Um, I, I really like the Canadian mindset in regards to aviation, where you, as a, as a commercial pilot in North America, you, you look at yourself and as your job as just being glorified bus drivers. And I think it's it's an awesome way of looking at, at things. And it's not a mindset that is shared everywhere in France. And uh, I really wanted to get closer to that mindset of we're just glorified bus drivers. So we're not going to think too highly of ourselves. And we're going to keep it easy and nice and professional and safe in the cockpit. That's the type of, of CRM of, uh, that I enjoy. So I really enjoy uh, Air Canada for that. Do you have any interest in civilian air show performances? Is that something you'd look to go down later on in life or something doesn't um, interest you anymore? Maybe later. Right now, from a, a medical point of view, I'm not allowed to fly single pallet, um, maybe for another year. 
so it's not in my in my radar right now but before my stroke for sure that was a goal i had um maybe later um I, th I see my next five to six years, are, I think they're going to be re rather busy and I don't want to add extra aviation um, when I've got a lot of other stuff to deal with. Um, keynotes, uh, YouTube, lot of stuff, you know what it's like guys, it's time consuming and um, I gain enough experience to know that if I'm not at 110% I shouldn't step in an aircraft. And mm. if I'm not at 120% there is no way I'm stepping in an aircraft for an air show. That's for sure. sure. Um, well, you, you're talking about keeping yourself busy. So obviously alongside the airline stuff, you, you have your own business. Uh, I think a, a few businesses now, actually, is, I think. Is that right? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and the first one you started out with was Mac 3 Management, which used flight sims, so DCS, to teach uh, business skills and um, business training, that sort of thing. What what prompted that? Why flight sims? Why DCS? Um... Uh, it's it's. I'm coming from a Navigeek background. So when I was a when I was a teenager, I used to fly a lot in flight simulators. So I would really enjoy it. Uh, F twenty two game, all those flight sim. I really really love those games, and um, and, and I had to stop during my military career. Um, on the side, I mean, uh, um, I, I used to be in sports, uh, triathlon and duathlons at the world championship, amateur world championship level. Uh, during my training in the U.S., I won the triathlon U.S. Open. Uh, so, so, so it was keeping me fairly decently busy as well. Um, but I, I just couldn't do everything. And so I promised myself when VR is going to come back, I mean, when VR is going to be the big thing, I'll, I'll get back to my to my teenager um, passion and uh, <laughs> I'll see what it's like. And I was blown away by the flight in Mirage 2000 in DCS. And I realized that just like in the Matrix, uh, you know, in the Matrix, he plugs himself in Matrix 1 and after eight hours, he wakes up and says, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> and, and, and the feeling I had after my first 25 minutes in VR flying DCS on the 2000 was I can transfer uh, 100 years of lessons learned from aviation to someone and make him emotionally feel what it's like and why we do what we do thanks to VR. So now I've got this ability to do this I know Kung Fu to anyone really willing to receive the training and and I, I thought that's awesome so I thought hey let's let's get into that and it was working extremely well pre-COVID we changed the business model a bit. Now we do webinars and we do um, workshops from the distance as well, which mm. is uh, which is pretty fun. Um, but the concept is uh, it works extremely well, uh, very well received. But on the side also, because there is a huge industry. I mean, there was a huge industry. Uh, keynotes are very uh, are very in demand as well. And uh, uh, um, I did a couple lecture at Brunel University as well in, in the UK. Okay. How does um, how does flying in DCS? I, I, I don't think there's a Rafale module. Um, Sam or, or, or Pierre, correct me. But, no. um, how does flying in DCS compare with, say, the simulators that you had in the French Navy? Uh, if you look at the Super E simulator, it's like flight simulator. I mean, technology from flight simulators 1970 ish. Okay. <laughs> so, very old school. Um, the Rafale sim is pretty is pretty is great. Um, so graphics aren't as good, which makes the formation flying more difficult than in DCS. Uh, I, I honestly find that DCS really stepped up the game. It, it's extremely. I mean, I, I just did a ACM mission with two influencers today, and it was awesome. Um, so you can really train a lot and. It's for a reason that now the French Air Force is using DCS for some Mirage 2000 training. So they've been using it for a couple of months now and it's really awesome. Um, so it's really close to the real thing. I like to say it's like 85% because you're missing on G-Force of course. And uh, I did some featuring with a, with a DCS user channel and the guy was pulling 9G for like three minutes. I'm like, I'm just... <laughs> I wasn't getting it because he was turning and I couldn't get a shot on him and I was like, 
I couldn't lead enough to, to get a gunshot on him because he was doing like 550 knots at the deck for like circles and circles. So now, now, I, now, now I've learned. So I adapt in my style to DCS. <laughs> but uh, um, other than the G-force and the fear of, you know, you're going to die if you do something stupid. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it, and the feedback from the stick, especially on old, um, older generation aircraft like the 2000 where the stick moves and you have some noise level that tells you how fast you're going. Um, it's extremely realistic. And for all the procedures and all that stuff, you can really use DCS to to enhance your your, your preparation for a flight, honestly. It, uh, I think it's awesome. Um, I tested the new flight sim with a client. I'm doing some consulting in the gaming industry, but uh, I, had, I had a chance to test it uh, last Tuesday. And I think it's gonna be nice as well. But um, Different use than DCS. If you if you want to do some military stuff, DCS is is awesome. Uh, speaking of ACM, I do have to share this story. Um, I remember in the first few months of the business, me, uh, my dad, and my mate Chris. He keeps getting shout outs in this podcast, way beyond what he deserves. Um, <laughs> we we went round to where you had your simulators um, because I think you needed to or you wanted to test out a few scenarios what would work for the business what what will clients enjoy and we got to doing a bit of dogfighting and spitfires and i just remember the, the the fight started and almost i mean within before i could process what was going on you were behind me and my head was spinning around like a the spinning top at the end of inception trying to <laughs> keep my eyes on you work out where you were at the same time you're doing all this without any thought whatsoever while chatting to your kids in English, your second language. And I've never felt so humiliated in my life. <laughs> I'm sorry. How, how long till he actually shot you down? Uh, I think he let me fly for a little bit before he shot me down. <laughs> like a cat with a mouse having a bit of fun with it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, uh, I, I do apologize, but uh, but look well, at the bright well, side. Look at the bright side. That's, uh, that's what we're trained for. So the training is good, and uh, that, that, <laughs> and you're, you're not paying tax. It. Yeah, you're not paying taxes for nothing. I do remember. <laughs> I, I I just remember I had one opportunity to get a shot on you, and I didn't take it. And oh, such a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't being kind. Just opportunity missed. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, the Spit is a is an awesome plane. But, uh, I like to fly the 2000 or the F-18 in DCS, but um, mm -hmm. I, I might go toward the F-5 a little bit. But uh, I'm trying to work my way into the Fox 2 stuff. Uh, I have to stay away from the Fox 3 because it's a bit too too sensitive. But uh, guns and Fox 2 are nice. Do, do, do you just want to... I mean, so Fox 2 is... Uh, yeah, uh, Fox 2 is infrared heat-seeking uh, missiles. Uh, guns is guns. Uh, 30 mic mic, so... It's a bullet that's about 480 grams, 21 centimeters, so it's like eight inch uh, long. Um, one bullet could destroy an aircraft. We have 125 in a Rafale. We have two times 125 in a 2000. Uh, so it's a pretty little machine. And uh, Fox 3 is um, what we call active missiles. So their nickname, Fire and Forget, but it's sort of uh, Nox because. Uh, <laughs> Because if you just shoot them at miles away and turn away, they're never going to find their target. But uh, there's like a new generation of missiles, and uh, and using them implies a lot of tactics. And um, and as fighter pilots, we do, we try to to stay away from that, uh, not to get into any trouble. Even though the entire world knows how to do Fox Three tactics nowadays, but it wasn't the case five years ago. So it has changed a little bit. So okay. you've written a book. You're uh well, or were flying with Air Canada, notwithstanding um, stuff going on this year. Um, Ex-French Navy, you've got Mach 3 management. Um, also, chuck in a couple of triathlons. Why not? Is there anything you don't do? Yes. That you, that you hope yeah. to, that you hope <laughs> to be able to do? Is it, is it like uh, a three-point list, like three things I don't do? I haven't been to Everest yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very good at all the admin paper, all the paperwork admin stuff. It's killing me. Uh, I hate <laughs> it. Is there anything Actually, that you want to be doing in the next couple of uh, years that you that you don't at the moment? I, I just got fined by HMRC, I think, oh, <laughs> for some late paperwork. So uh, I have to work on that. Um, yeah. Um, 
Honestly, right now I'm, I'm switching from stuff to stuff, just starting my second YouTube channel. So I've got a main YouTube channel. We did 4.5 million views in four months from scratch. Uh, it's bilingual. I've got content in French and English. I'm going to slow down a little bit the content on that. And I started a, a channel called Aviation Esport, uh, where I want to try to see if we can make an esport out of dogfighting. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> see if that works. Uh, so that's, that's one of my main goals for the next three years. Other than that, uh, it's tough to, right now, honestly, it's really difficult to, to project because all the industries I'm touching collapse. Uh, <laughs> 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 so, so I'm don't, don't go into web development. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, getting into civil aviation on the max, the max is forbidden to fly. Okay, so I'm getting into the keynote business and there is COVID, so no more <laughs> keynote business. And then, okay, so two months after, it's commercial aviation collapse due to COVID afterwards. So, so I'm, I'm going step by step. I'm using my methodology, so it's one day after the other. And, uh, and I'm going to be focusing on, uh, on trying to, to regain some consulting business and stuff like that. And, uh, and I've been lucky enough to now I'm getting a lot of invites that are pretty cool. Uh, I spent three days with RTC in Charles de Gaulle, embedded with the ATC during three days. I'm going to make an awesome video. We chased aircraft on the runway with the small cars and everything. So I've got unique footage. Uh, that's going to be cool. And, um, and a lot of guys with medical backgrounds. Um, are inviting me to see how they work in hospitals, stuff like that, to share insights on uh, debriefing and all that stuff. So I think that's gonna, that's where I'm gonna be going, uh, but not playing on inventing something new in the in the, in the coming years. It's uh, we'll try to adapt. Uh, I'm sure you guys know what it's like nowadays. It's a, it's a bit complex. Hmm. Do you do any work still with the military, or is that side of your career finished? Mm, you never say never. Um, I might be doing some stuff maybe in terms of, I mean, actually I did an interview from some military personnel two weeks ago. So I might maybe through YouTube be doing some work with them. Uh, otherwise I've got a couple consulting gigs um, all around the world. Uh, so it's really depends. French military, I'm not affiliated really with them anymore, but, uh, but we'll see, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it really depends. Uh, let's say all military contract stuff like that. It really, really depends. Um, and um, and right now there is a push in the West uh, for more and more externals uh, consultants. So you've seen it with all the redder stuff. Um, so there are more and there are more and more demands of external um, former fighter pilots coming back to to share some insights. So so we'll see how it goes. Looking back at your career, then. Um you made a conscious conscious decision to to join the navy over the air force, which is what you said at the at the top of the podcast. Um, are you are you happy with that choice, or do you would you, you know do you sometimes look at the the, the Mirage two thousand and think, oh, I, I would love to have you know got some hours on that. Um, it was a difficult choice. It was uh, an intense and honestly difficult career. But uh, I wouldn't change it because being a very small military, a very small group, the French Navy, you can really, really, really have opportunities that you cannot get in the Air Force. Um, Being leader of a two-ship in air shows when you're not even 30 years old is something you just don't get anywhere else. And right after that, I was named um, a subject matter expert for the French Rafale which is normally a function you have when you're like 40 to 45 years old. And it was given to me at uh, 29 initially. Uh, so I was the youngest subject matter experts uh, of France. On, but, but just, I mean, if, if you really go all out, if you, if you prove that you know what you're doing and that you work hard, you, you can have opportunities you couldn't have in a bigger structure like the Air Force. Uh, so that's really what I enjoyed about the Navy. Uh, the con is that it's, it never stops. And small units like that, and it's like in a small business, the more energy you put in, the more energy it sucks out of you. And if you don't understand that nobody's going to tell you to stop at some point, you'll have to decide by yourself, then you're just going to end up uh, ruining your personal life, being fatigued or stuff like that. So, so 
I, I was I'm extremely grateful for the 13 years I did, uh, but I'm also grateful I didn't stay an, an extra couple of years. And uh, lucky me, because uh, I joined Air Canada, I got my medical, and I got my medical issues afterwards. That's for all the pilots listening. Uh, you cannot have too much medical licenses, um, medical certificates. What I mean by that is that I've got I had my French, U.S. and Canadian. Um, pilot licenses and medicals but what is difficult to have is your initial medical exam once you've passed the me- initial if you have a, an health issue it's it's easier to process because you already passed the initial it's just like a waiver and if you, had I had I not joined Air Canada it might have been extremely difficult for me to join afterwards because I might have have been recruited due to medical issues that's, that's a point I want to make so if you're flying maybe from time to time abroad, just go do your initial medical from the most countries you can because you, you never know. One day you might not be allowed to fly anymore in Europe due to medical reasons, but you're going to be allowed to fly in Canada or in the US because the medical requirements are different and you had that initial exam already. What, what advice would you give to someone looking to become a pilot, whether it's military, whether it's civil, whether it's you know competitive aerobatics, for example? Um, be prepared. Leave nothing to chance. Um, in the in the book, I got a, a very easy methodology that is the A A B C D. You know, like the song A B, as easy as A B C. But uh, <laughs> it's a, a A is for um, anticipation. The second one is for analyze, brief, conduct, and debrief. Is hey, you want to be a fighter pilot? Awesome. So first, analyze the industry. That's uh, I mean, uh, anticipate um, and, and analyze. So, so you really have to understand what are we looking for. So if you're French, for uh, you have to speak English, you have to be physically fit, all that stuff. And, and it's true for everything. So you want to be an aerobatic pilot. Okay, so analyze what, you, what industry, what activity you want to get in and take the time to look on the videos, look at the internet and really dig in to have a perfect understanding of... Sorry. <clears throat> To, to have a perfect understanding of where you want to, where you want to go, and now that you know, especially if you're young, you want to you understand what the requirements are. Just align yourself with that and work to meet those requirements. Uh, I know a lot of guys, very smart guys, very good pilots. Join the military. They do 20 years in the military. They're an ad instructor, all that stuff, and they transition to the airlines, and they never make it to the majors. I mean, and when they work abroad. And and the guys, they're stuck in like regional. And why? Because they didn't get a college degree. It's part of the requirements. So you might be the best pilot in the world if your company says, we need a college degree to get you in. It's usually the case for major airlines in North America. You're not getting in unless, I mean, with the time coming, you better have a college degree. Just meet the requirements and I think it's part of that mindset where you really have to understand nobody's waiting for you so you have to understand where you're going and align yourself with what people are expecting from you and, and that, if you if you apply that yeah, I mean it just works everywhere I think we probably add on another 10 or 15 minutes of all the various websites and social media handles <laughs> and YouTube channels that you'd like to plug so uh, I'll, I'll hand it over to you <laughs> to me <laughs> um, no yeah so if you want to know more about the stuff we do you just type ATE A-T-E Alpha Tango Echo <laughs> and Shue uh, C-H-U-E-T if you google that you'll find our YouTube channel and in the YouTube channel you have all the links and my website is uh, combatproven.org combatproven.org and uh, I got another one that is debrief.org um, Delta Bravo Romeo India Eco Foxtrot and the book is on Amazon if you type debrief so it's D point brief debrief and um, we selected debrief because there is one of our motto is you have to brief be brief and debrief if you do brief be brief debrief it works all the time pretty simple stuff to do uh, yet not a lot of people do it but uh, but no um, and then from there I'm like everyone else I'm on Twitter Instagram uh, and all the other good stuff that take me way too much time every day. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to spend less time on social medias because it's it's 
it's killing my brain and my fingers <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know if you've had this but my iphone uh screen time reports over each week has just skyrocketed since lockdown has happened <laughs> <laughs> um i've actually got one last question um uh, Pierre, what's the story so that we can explain to so that you can explain to our listeners? What's the story behind your call sign, Ate? <laughs> it's a play on the world uh, on word in French. Ate, so Shui is my last name. Ate Shui is what we say in French when you sneeze. <laughs> so it's like bless you. Uh, Ate Shui. Uh, Ate is also uh, non uh, what, the word we use for non-religious persons but has nothing to do with religion but uh, so it, it's a word that could be used several way and in the French Navy it's um, it's a military that is highly conservative uh, so usually when I would be introduced to a high-ranking officer as athees they will look at me in a weird way because it's like it means you're not into religion but uh, <laughs> but attaché, attaché is for that in the US I had a different call sign. Uh, they selected Atishwe when I came back on Super Etendard. Uh, in the US, they used to call me Chewy. Chewy. Chewy, 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 Chewy. Which <laughs> is actually pretty fun because, uh, as I told you earlier, I was into triathlon training like 20, 20 hours a week. And uh, I used to shave due to the cycling and all that stuff. <laughs> so being the Chewy with no, not a single hair was, was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But it was Brilliant. too cool to stay, too cool to to, to be kept. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, fantastic! Thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's been really, really interesting to talk to you on 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 a, a lot of different subjects as well. So, thanks for having me, and I hope your shows are going to come back extremely fast because uh, it, it's it, it it's yeah. not loud enough outside. I, I want to hear some jets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. Best of luck with uh, everything you're doing. Obviously, everything that's slightly hampered by the present situation. Let's hope that all clears up as soon as possible and, and everything you're doing can return back to normal. Um, and in, in the meantime, obviously, we'll enjoy your YouTube videos. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fly safe. <laughs> uh, so thank you for listening to another episode of our podcast. Uh, we are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at, at UK Airshow Review. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast as well on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcast providers. So thanks again, and see you in another episode. Bye. <laughs>